Well, good morning from Los Angeles, California. Um, I'd like to welcome everybody to the Issacos podcast. Uh, we have a great session planned for you today, and we're going to tackle one of the, the big controversies that exists and how we manage massive rotator cuff tears. We have an incredible panel, and uh, I'm going to serve as the moderator today. Again, I'm Mark Gettleman. I am the co-director of the Sports Medicine Fellowship at the Southern California Orthopedic Institute, or SCOE. I've been in practice here for about 28 years, and uh, my former senior partner, Dr. Steven Snyder, and I have uh, done a lot in uh, regards to massive rotator cuff care and uh, discussions, and um, we're going to bring that uh, to, to Frey here today. I'm honored to have two incredible panelists. Uh, first, from uh, Europe, giving us the European perspective, uh, we have Dr. Bertie Bowe who is a complex knee and shoulder surgeon and the past president of the Norwegian Society for the Surgery of Sports of uh, Shoulder and the Elbow and uh, Vice General Secretary of ESCA. So Bertie, welcome. Thanks for being here. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure. Yes, I'm working in Oslo. So here it's good afternoon. And uh, I've been working in, uh, in a public university hospital for... Uh, more than 20 years being a shoulder specialist for the last 15 years and also doing a lot of complex knee injuries. Yes. So I'm also involved in ISACOS besides being the vice general secretary of ESCA. So in ISACOS, I'm a member of the shoulder committee and I'm an associate editor in GISACOS. So I'm looking forward to this discussion about the subacromial balloon. Right. Thank you. And then also from the West Coast of California, I can say good morning to Pat. Uh, from uh, Oregon, right. and uh, Pat is coming to us uh, from Medford, Oregon, where he is the head of the uh, or uh, Oregon Shoulder Institute, and uh, he's one of our leading experts in the United States. I've known Pat for a long time since he completed his training with Dr. Burkhart. Um, we're both on the board of the uh, San Diego Shoulder Meeting together, and uh, Pat is certainly one of our, you know, finest minds when it comes to talking about uh, rotator cuff and how we manage it. So Pat, welcome to you and uh, tell us a little bit about yourself. Yeah, thanks for having me, Mark. It's it's nice to be on this uh, podcast. I'll try to, you know, give the American perspective, although that's a really broad perspective as we'll get into, right? And, um, you know, it's a big controversy here right now, obviously in a, a topic that people are really speaking about frequently, um, but I will try to be as balanced as I can, although I'm going to be on the camp of you know, not necessarily doing a lot of balloons, but uh, we'll certainly go through all those things. So thanks for having me. Terrific. Well, thank you guys both uh, for being here. And, you know, I think when we think about massive rotator cuff care, it's obviously a difficult conversation, right? And we can go from non-operative management to partial repair to dermal grafts, now to synthetics and scaffolds and, you know, literally all the way to reverse, right? And so there's so many different options that we have available. And so we're going to try to, you know, spend a little bit of time talking about these two options, right? And they've been around about the same time, right? Mahata kind of first published his paper, I think, in 2012. And I think the balloon was uh, first developed in Israel in 2015. So we have about the same length of time as we look at those two. And so let's just start off first, uh, Bertie, with you. Who is your ideal patient for a balloon today? What, you know, when you see a hundred patients who walk into your office with a massive rotator cuff tear, who is the person that you're going to counsel and say, I think the balloon is the best option for you right now? 
Yes, uh, that uh, would be a patient that um, had tried non-operative treatment first. So, of course, there's a rotator cuff tear that I think I might not be able to repair. So that might be because of retraction or fatty infiltration. Uh, sometimes it might be because of the comorbidity or the age of the patient. But I want them to try non-operative treatment uh, guided by a physiotherapist first. So I would not like put a balloon in a patient who had a small trauma with pain that came to me after like three or four weeks without trying any physiotherapy first. So I want them to try at least three months, often six months before I tell them that there might be an option with the balloon. Uh, I don't want them to have osteoarthritis or uh, rotator cuff arthropathy more than Hamada. Uh, uh, well, one and two is okay. Three is maybe not okay. If you have a, a proximal migration of the humeral head, I don't think the balloon is the right thing. So, and then um, sometimes you don't know if you might be able to do a partial repair. So it's not like I do either partial repair or balloon. I can do a partial repair with a balloon. So, um, yeah, I think that was about what I would, how I would pick the patient. And there's not really an age limit. It's the, it's the patient in front of me and the MRI that tells me what to do. And also an so, x-ray. So if this is this patient that you've just described, is this your first line for that person who you feel has failed conservative care? and has a massive rotator cuff tear or a tear that you're concerned by MRI is not repairable, is that the conversation you're gonna have? Say, we're gonna go to the operating room, gonna try to repair this as best I can. If I'm unable to repair the rotator cuff, then I think a balloon would be a good option for you. Uh, for me, and I think for many of my colleagues in the Nordic countries, uh, the balloon is still experimental surgery uh, because we don't have really good evidence that this works. So the only patients where I use the balloon now is in a prospective randomized controlled trial. So we have a study going on where we randomize between debridement, including possibility for partial repair and biceps surgery with or without balloon. So that's actually the only patients where we are using the balloon now. When, when the balloon came some years ago, I started to use it. And I was, my impression was positive because I had many patients coming back, uh, showing me how they could move their arm and very grateful because they had been pain-free. Uh, but then it started to come a case series. And of course, we know about a study from Metcalf, um, the randomized trial where they, um, where they give us the advice not to use the balloon. So, so two years ago, we decided to stop using the balloon for like, everybody that could have a beneficial outcome from it, but we only use it in this randomized trial at the moment. Interesting. So that's that's similar to the trial that was completed, you know, here a couple of years ago um, in order to get the balloon approved in the United States where we did that randomized trial. I was one of the investigators, uh, Nick Verma led that charge. And so it was interesting. All right, so let's switch for a second. So Pat, you know, again, a brilliant mind when it comes to uh, how we think about things here in the United States. And I want to kind of take a step back in terms of 
how we got here, right? So, you know, Quan has shown us the Rohi score. And I know you've spoken a lot about the Rohi score and, you know, mm -hmm. how that can help us manage rotator cuff pathology. And um, you've put together a great algorithm with Pat Denard and uh, Garrett Jackson, kind of mm -hmm. helping us understand what we do and how we manage these patients, right? And how you look at this um, when we're dealing with these quote Rohi scores that are, you know, seven or less ideally, right? The first right. thing I want to say is, you know, I don't see a balloon on your algorithm. And, uh, you know, so tell us a little bit about how we're going to manage these, you know, rohis that are probably greater than seven. We've decided that, you know, we're either going to try to augment it if we can, or we're going to get to the place where it's irreparable. And if it's irreparable, you know, you've talked to us about um, the best things are either to do the SCR, like we're talking about here, or a tendon transfer. So, Tell us how you think about that. And does the balloon play in anywhere in that algorithm? You know, maybe it wasn't really on our forefront when we were published this, but is it something that we should add to that algorithm? I think what you're doing here, Mark, is really on point, is trying to really define the indication for all these procedures, right? Because now that we have these options, I think they probably, many of them have a different place. And if we learned anything with SCR, it was being very cautious and specific with your indication. So that particular paper you reference, we were really highlighting the repairable rotator cuff tear and when to augment or when to not augment. Um, so I think, you know, if we back up from there and say, okay, you know, who is the candidate? And I actually put another paper together on this um, in arthroscopy, another level five, that's really a, an algorithmic approach to um, management of massive rotator cuff tears. And basically my, my kind of general way of looking at it is I first assess, is this a joint preservation candidate, right? And that is basically looking at their function and looking at their x-rays. So if somebody's Hamada one or two, they are likely going to be a joint preservation candidate. Um, and then I will add in some functional questions as well. If somebody has Hamada three or four, that's going to be RSA. So we're now down the Hamada one and two. They're likely repairable. I will make sure they have overall generally preserved function, meaning they have, um, if they have intact external rotation and forward elevation, then I'm going to be thinking joint preservation. And then for me, it's getting in there. And if it's a young patient, yet less than 65, I'm going to do something, this is generally speaking, I'm going to do something to try to reconstruct anatomically. In my hands right now, that would be a cable reconstruction. Um, if they lacked ER, that would be a lower trap transfer. If they're over 65, I would be starting to think about something like a partial repair, a tuberoplasty, or if you're somebody who uses a balloon, I think a balloon would be in, fall into that, assuming they have preserved function. Now, if their function's gone, even if they're Hamada one or two, you know, they have chronic pseudoparalysis, you're probably going to be in the reverse candidate, reverse um, uh, candidate anyways. But that's kind of how I use, look to kind of sort through the patients and picture what is, what is this patient's need and what is the option I can use to address them, address their need and get them back to uh, living their life. So for that, that patient, so we've got a Hamada yeah. one, let's uh -huh. just say they're, they're 66 years old. Okay. Um, they have had pain for some time and yep. this is, this is a patient I see all day long, every day, right? Pain yep. for several months. They were doing fine. <clears throat> they fell playing pickleball yep. and now they, 
they're pseudoparetic. They, they yeah. can't lift their arm. You give them an injection and they can lift their arm up over their head. You get the MRI and their head's up a little bit. They're Gutalier 3. Yeah. And you gave them a cortisone shot. They've been through physical therapy. You help their pain. They're now no longer pseudoparalytic. They're pseudoparetic, yeah. but mm -hmm. they can get their arm up. They can't sleep at night and they're miserable, right? Yeah. So this is, you know, as soon as we're finished here, I'm going to go see this 10 times right yeah, now. Exactly. And that's the patient that I find the biggest challenge. They, the first thing they say to me is, doc, I don't want to reverse. I, yeah. I don't want arthroplasty, right? That's right. the first thing out of their mouth. The reason I'm coming to see you is because, you know, I know you don't like to do those. You, you like to fix things. Mm -hmm. And now where do we go between taking this person who's 66 years old and all they want to do is be able to not have pain at night, be able to play pickleball. They do not want six months of rehab for an SCR, right? Right. And is that yeah. the person who you decide, okay, I'm going to try a balloon because that to me is the biggest thing. The biggest difference for me in these patients is, is the rehab time, right? If I can take somebody and, you know, if you want to release their biceps, do a tenodesis, you know, for me now in those patients, I'm probably going to do more of what I call a bio SCR, right? Either mm -hmm. tack it down in the front or move it to yeah. the center of the humeral head, use that mm -hmm. as my SCR and then say, go do what you can do. Or am I going to put a balloon in that patient? Because those are the ones who you really are, I struggle with every day is, yeah, I, I want to get this person happy, but I also don't want to put them through, you know, six months of rehab that may then fail. Like if you look at our data on SCR, the data is not very good. You know, yeah. if you don't pick the right patient, you know, as JT Tokish likes to say, if there's muscle, there's hope. None of these people have muscle. So right. How, right. How yeah. We, I'm with you. I mean, no, no SCR in those patients or cable reconstruction, they're older, they have preserved function. So they're not generally an ideal candidate for reverse. I mean, because there's studies showing that if people have preserved forward elevation, they're not as likely to be happening reverse, unless they specifically say, hey, doc, I, I can't reach and I can't hold stuff. And you just know that a partial repair or, or anything else is not going to do it for them. So yeah, I, I think that is case by case in my hands right now. That is a partial repair, plus or minus tuberoplasty. I don't know if tuberoplasty um, is going to make a difference right now. I think it's intriguing for the spacer effect. Um, but there are other people who would do a balloon in that case. My feeling is that right now I don't have evidence that it's superior. Um, if you look at that JBGS trial, the rehab was actually the same as partial repair. So everybody's saying faster rehab. Well, yep, yeah, you know, but in that study, that's not what was done. It was a, it was a consistent rehab, as you know. Um, and I don't like the idea of putting in a, you know, a foreign body. And then I have the, honestly, I have the expense issue and where I'm going to do that, you know? So for all those reasons for me, but primarily the evidence reason, I'm going to stick with a partial repair in that patient. So, so Bertie, if we're, let's just say this patient doesn't randomize into your, your, you know, study that you're doing and you can't do uh, your balloon, what's your role for doing some type of augmentation? Are, are you an SCR believer? Do you just do no. a tuberoplasty? Do you do an inner position? Well, how would you manage that patient? Yeah, I'm not an SCR fan. <laughs> so I don't do SCR with facialata autograft or with human dermal allograft. I don't do that. I don't believe that that's beneficial for these patients 
but I do sometimes with their own biceps. Uh, so for me, this patient you described, I would, uh, of course, discuss with them uh, reversed. And I will also try to treat them probably for at least six months with uh, rehab. Uh, and uh, if not, I would probably try a partial repair with or without a biceps ICR. ICR. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I think it's interesting for me, the expense is a big part of this, right? You know, you know, for years we've been biceps killers, right? You know, oh, the biceps is there. We got to get rid of the biceps. Now, when I get that MRI and I see an intact biceps, I'm like, I got an option here that's not going to cost this patient a lot of money. And mm -hmm. I at least can do something, right? Because all these other things that we're talking about, especially in the United States, patients over 65 and they have Medicare, that takes us out of our surgery centers and forces us to go to a hospital, which we prefer not to do. So I want to be able to stay in my outpatient surgery center, let it be part of my flow of my day. And now I have an at least option for that patient. And I've really used the biceps a lot. You know, Dr. Snyder, before he retired, um, was doing a lot of tenodesis in situ, right? He just fixed it in the groove, didn't release it and used it, you know, he, you know, Dr. Snyder was a pioneer for many, many reasons, but he was ahead of his time in this as well. We were basically using that anterior cable reconstruction by just fixing the biceps at the top of the groove in the, you know, super pec area and then leaving the biceps. And that was serving as a humeral head depressor. Larry Field has taken it one step further now, right? And taking the biceps out of the groove and moving it over to the center of the humeral head. And Personally, my experience is I haven't seen a whole lot of difference between the two. Um, I think if the tear is more posterior superior, I'll take it out of the groove and move it over. Otherwise, I tend to just leave it in place. But having that option is really nice. And I'm still a believer in, in doing more inner position when I'm going to use my dermal graft. Because one of the things that we found in, in our experience, and unfortunately, it hasn't really proved out uh, in a lot of places other than with Ivan Wong in Canada. But if you attach that dermal graft to the native cuff, we are preserving some of that muscle. So I may have a Hamada, I may have a, a Gutalier 3, but some of that muscle's working. And I think by attaching my graft to the muscle, I'm getting the same tuberoplasty effect that you're getting, you know, from, you know, Rafi Mizrayan's concept and, you know, doing that laterally on the tuberosity. But I think by preserving some of that muscle, we do allow it to kind of um, function a little bit. And granted, this is level five, right? But, you know, we, we call it a tendon transfer in situ because what we're doing is we're basically bringing that dermal graft to that. And so I think it's a little bit less invasive than doing a lower trap in terms of that. So I think what we're seeing here is it's a tough problem. You know, George Athwell biomechanically has looked at this, right? And at least at time zero, we're about the same, right? Whether you put a balloon in or you do an SCR, you're able to get that head down at time zero. But where are we with both of these options at, you know, three months, right? right. So, so, so how do you counsel these patients, Pat? What are you telling their expectations going to be in terms of functionality, pain, and the likelihood that they're still going to go on to a reverse? If they have an irreparable rotator cuff tear, I tell them they're, they're prime, and I'm doing a um, joint preservation procedure, I tell them that their primary goal is pain relief you know, don't expect strength improvement. Um, I tell them that most people are satisfied with the procedure. Um, I don't give them a likelihood, a percentage of going on to reverse. I just kind of leave it at that because for me, it introduces a lot of different um, 
unknowns and uncertainty for patients that I think can actually be detrimental. I just have that discussion about what their goals are. Um, I do clarify again that strength piece because I, I'm hesitant to do a lot of reverse if somebody has preserved forward flexion unless they specifically say, you know, I just can't, I'm doing a lot of reach and I can't pick things up. You know, like their dominant arm, they may be more likely because they can't reach into a cupboard, that sort of thing. So in that patient, you know, I will try to sort out and, and try to get them strength as well with reverse. So Bertie, you've written a really nice systematic review looking at, you know, patient education and patient expectations. How do you counsel these patients so that you are meeting their expectations and can hopefully get them to, you know, have an outcome that they're going to be comfortable with? Yeah, my experience is that it's that's a really important part of treating our patients to talk to them. And uh, in Europe and Scandinavia, uh, there's a lot of um, shared decision making. So I try to inform them. And you said that sometimes you have to um, think a lot of the costs for the patients because most of you in the States work in private clinic. I work in a public hospital. So the patient doesn't pay anything. So I can do uh, whatever I think is best for the patient. I don't have to think of the cost for the patients. Of course, I think a little bit of the cost for my hospital, but that's the that's the most of the patients are treated in public hospitals in Norway. So, so I can do what I think is best for the patient without thinking of my salary or thinking of that it will be expensive for the patient. Uh, so uh, if, if I recommend a reverse to a patient, I feel safe that this is a documented and good treatment for the patient. For SCR, for balloon, I have to tell them that this is still experimental. We have a lot of case series that shows that the patient is improving from before the operation until three or six or 12 months after. But there are no really good studies on SCR either comparing to if you didn't do SCR. So there are not very good randomized trials comparing to to a reverse or to doing nothing. So yes, we have a lot of KCRs. It's the same for the balloon, but we don't have a lot of studies comparing to like placebo or comparing with the same procedure without the balloon, like the one we have started now. So um, this is our problem. We don't have good enough evidence. We don't have good studies uh, showing us that we should use the balloon or we should use SCR. It's one of many options, and we are trying to help our patients. But when I talk to my patients, I say that sometimes it's better to try to continue doing physiotherapist and give it some time. And in the end, I will give you a reverse when you're ready for it. And that's well documented, and it's very good treatment for the most of the patients. So, so now let's take that same patient and make them 50 years old. And they are a, you know, they work in construction, you know, um, let's say they do HVAC installation and they work overhead all day long, every day. How do you counsel that patient differently than the, the 65 year old who just wants to play pickleball or tennis? Yeah, of course, I don't want to put a reverse in a 50 years old. <laughs> um, That's why I also, asked. 
Yeah, but also, and I, I don't want to do an SDR either. <laughs> I could maybe do it with the biceps, yes. And of course, you have to consider tendon transfer. But like Pat said, that we cannot promise the patients that they will get strong with a tendon transfer. So I tell them, you will not get that force that you need to work like that with a tendon transfer. As of course, in some patients, we end up doing it anyway. But for uh, 50 years old, I will try to avoid both reverse and SCR and, and the balloon, of course. So I will try to repair, if possible, partial repair, maybe a bio SCR with the biceps. So... So Pat in Oregon, you got a lot of strong guys, you know, working out in the forest. Yeah. You've got that same 50-year-old. What are you telling that patient that you're going to, how are you going to manage them? Yeah, so I would go in, assess repairability at the time of surgery. If they're repairable, I'm going to repair and I'm going to augment in that patient because they're going to probably have a row heel over seven and have a low risk of, or low chance of healing. So I'm going to try to improve that. Whether I can or not remains to be seen, but I'm going to try to. If they are irreparable, then I'm going to, if they have um, preserved external rotation at the side, which I, by that I mean more than 20 degrees, I'm going to do a uh, cable reconstruction. I'm probably going to use the biceps as well. So do both of those. If they have lack of external rotation at the side, then I'm going to do a lower trap. I'll repair first and then do my lower trap. So that is a more sophisticated discussion. I think you have to also in that tell the patient, hey, this is a really challenging situation. There's no one particular option that is proven to be the best, but here's how I'm going to approach this. So you give them some confidence and try to help them understand the severity of it and also the length of recovery for that patient, because it's going to be a big deal to be off work for a long time. And so today, you know, we're, we're seeing there's a yeah. lot of different graft options, right? So we've right. got, you know, when you're talking an augment, you know, how do you decide today? Because it's becoming, it used to be pretty clear, right? You use dermal matrix allograft, you put yeah. it on top and, and we'd be good. Now yeah. we've got xenografts and now yeah. we've got these, you know, bioinductive scaffolds mm -hmm. that are, you know, at least in the U.S., we've got, you know, two, maybe three options that are coming onto the market. And now how are you deciding, you know, in that guy who needs strength, the 50 year old laborer, mm -hmm. I don't know that a xenograft from just a biologic right. augmentation is doing much for me in that case. How do you decide what graft? you know, you're going to use in that case. Right now, let's, so those are repairable patients. I'm trying to augment. I'm going to use dermal allograft because I think you have the largest body of evidence with re, with regard to that lowest rate of inflammatory reactions based on basic science and clinical studies. So I'm going to use dermal allograft in an online manner as Barbara and Litchfield showed us years ago. And, um, and I think that the Patches are interesting. What I mean by patch is like a poly patch. I think those are interesting, but we need some further evidence. I'm, I'm intrigued by the idea of combining that perhaps to get a biological and a strength effect, but I just really don't know yet for sure. And then Bertie, and any thoughts in terms of augment? Do you do any, you know, bursal sided augments for your patients? I still don't do any augmentation like that. Uh, it's an interesting uh, study coming now from Spain. A friend of mine, Ruiz Iban, has uh, randomized between using the regenitin patch or not. And it looks promising that he has less re-ruptures and, um, and a thicker cuff after using the patch. But uh, I'm still waiting for some more uh, evidence in, uh, in good studies. So I don't use anything so far. We're doing a randomized well, controlled trial right now, Mark, on um, uh -huh. 
this exact topic using a two millimeter onlay dermal patch um, dermal graft, um, similar to what Barber and uh, Litchfield did years ago. But of course, the thing that's really changed is the delivery method is easier now with these onlay techniques. And then also having some understanding with the ROHI, and we're trying to incorporate that to identify these patients that are higher risk and really categorize them and see if it can be effective. Great. Well, look, I think this has been an incredible discussion. Uh, I don't know that, you know, we hit the topic exactly because I think mm -hmm. we still don't really understand where the balloon comes into play all that often, especially with the expense or where the SCR remains due to the expense, yeah. the difficulty in the rehab and some of the failures that we're seeing. I, I think we're thinking about this in the right way. And I think we've hoped our, our listeners to kind of understand how to think about these patients in the non-reverse candidate, right? Where we want to talk about not only the, the younger, more active uh, laborer or, you know, the, the older individual who just wants some pain relief, but neither one of them are, are really interested in reverse. So uh, I thank you guys for your time. I thank you for your expertise and really appreciate the opportunity to work with Isikos to do this and to moderate this session and uh, appreciate your time. Thanks so much. Thanks a lot for thank, doing this. Thank you for having us here.